But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors, and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the REACH podcast. I hope you all are enjoying your respective summers. Um, I was lied to when I moved to Australia and everyone told me it was hot all the time. It's in the middle of winter here and it's Baltic. I've got two space heaters either side of me as I'm recording this. Um, today we've got a really cool episode with Dr. Carla Prado who is an associate professor at the University of Alberta and has done a tremendous amount of work in contributing to the field in relation to the effects of body composition on cancer recurrence, treatment and treatment toxicities and even survival so today's episode we are just kind of talking about all of that what's been done um, in the in the field around low muscle mass and the implications of that and Carla also does a great job of giving an overview of both sarcopenia and cachexia and the implications of those as well so uh, it was really a great episode and, and I appreciate Carla's time and chatting to us and I will shut up and let you just enjoy the show thanks for tuning in and we'll chat to you soon as I said to you off offline, Carla, I, I am a huge fan of, of all the work that you've done um, so far in this space. And I think you've done a tremendous job in furthering our understanding of, of the implications and uh, of, of low muscle mass and cancer. And you've done you know a ton of work. But before we jump into the episode itself, give the listeners a bit of a background about you and what you're up to and how you got there. Um, well, it's a pleasure for me to be invited for the podcast. Um, I think this is an excellent idea, a brilliant idea to connect the research with uh, several stakeholders. Um, so I am an associate, an associate professor at the University of Alberta, and I am also a registered dietitian here in Canada. I'm, I hold a Campus Innovative uh, uh, Innovates Program Chair in Nutrition, Food and Health. So that means that 75% of my time is dedicated to research. And I also direct uh, the Human Nutrition Research Unit, which is a state-of-the-art facility for research and training. We are the best in Canada and one of the best in the world for body composition and energy metabolism assessment. So we measure um, what body composition is, which is the different proportions of muscle and fat. I'll talk a little bit about that uh, next and how many calories people are burning so that's what we we do so um on that note, my research program then focuses on investigating abnormalities in body composition. So as I've mentioned, we uh, uh, when we look at body composition, we go beyond looking at a unit of body weight and looking at the different proportions of muscle and fat within that unit of body weight. So people can have exactly the same body weight, but when you look on a scale, uh, uh, you know, that, that looks the same for people uh, in terms of their weight, then when you look at body composition, you see that people can have at any given body weight or any given BMI, very little muscle, 
um, average muscle and a lot of muscle mass. And the same goes for fat mass. So the proportions are very different. And the proportions of muscle and fat are much more important to our health than our overall body weight. So that's why my research has focused on in going beyond a, looking, a unit of body weight. So looking on the inside, if I can call it that way. And we need more sophisticated techniques. So we need uh, body composition techniques to investigate the different proportions of tissues in our body. And I'm particularly interested in studying low muscle mass. Uh, so this phenotype or this body composition type of low muscle mass and how that's relevant to the person with cancer. Yeah, that's a great uh, kind of segue into the the whole the implications of low muscle mass. I think it, it's it's important, and we will discuss uh, the measurement issues and and more advanced technology to assess body composition itself. But let's start with with why it's is this important. You know, we talk about low muscle mass in the general population and sarcopenia, and we should be trying to preserve muscle mass. But mm-hmm. there are more severe implications in in individuals with cancer. So dive a little bit into that. Absolutely. So we all lose muscle as we age. So when we talk about low muscle, uh, what comes to most people's mind is an idea of a frail, an older, uh, an older adult. But um, what we've learned is that low muscle mass can be prevalent or can be present at any given body weight, as I've mentioned before, but at any given age. And also, people with chronic diseases such as cancer, they are prone to having low muscle mass because not only the disease itself can cause muscle loss, but you know sometimes the medium age of cancer diagnosis is uh, around 65 years of age, and there are a lot of other factors that we can talk about later that can lead to this low muscle mass. So it's interesting that when I came first started my PhD. I was supposed to be working with cancer cachexia and um, not supposed to be working. I guess we, we work with cancer cachexia as well, but I went to recruit patients who were uh, malnourished in terms of having a very low BMI, looking very petite, very frail. And when I went down to the clinics uh, here in Canada, what I've noticed is that the majority of patients had overweight or obesity. And I remember going back to my uh, supervisor, who is a very well-known researcher in cancer cachexia, and I said, this cancer cachexia does not exist. Uh, No one is frail. No one has low body weight. And I was freaking out. I thought I was not going to be able to finish my PhD. But then I asked her whether I could study the people with obesity. And she uh, said I could do that. And uh, we started looking at their body composition. And that was the first time that we saw that people with obesity could have as little muscle mass as a person who had a very, very low BMI. So they looked very large on the outside. But when you look on their inside, their muscle mass was very small. Um, and what we found was that these people who had low muscle mass, in spite of their very large body fat or body weight, I would say, uh, they had poor uh, um, quality of life, and, or, or more specifically, they had poor physical function. So it was difficult for them to move around, to do activities that we take it for granted, like opening a bottle of water, getting in and out of a chair, uh, um, you know, combing your hair, for example. So activities of daily living that we call, call it 
The other thing is that perhaps more important is that survival was shorter for people with low muscle mass. So we had patients with stage one cancer, which is extremely curative, right? We treat cancer, they off they go with their lives versus stage four uh, cancer, which is metastatic cancer, advanced cancer. And in spite of the stages of cancer, having low muscle was an independent predictor of survival. So that was very powerful. And we've also started exploring the importance of having low muscle to uh, toxicity to chemotherapy. We know that most chemotherapy agents are administered based on body surface area, which is a calculation that only takes height and weight into account. So technically two people, if you think of two people who have exactly the same body weight, uh, the same height, they will have the same body surface area, so they would be receiving the same amount of chemotherapy. But let's say these people have very different amounts of muscle. So the people, the person with low muscle is going to receive a very large amount of drug based on a very small amount of muscle. And muscle or the lean tissue, which makes, makes up the lean tissue compartment, is actually responsible for metabolizing the majority of chemotherapy drugs. So our hypothesis was that, okay, this person with low muscle is going to receive too much drug to be able to, to handle that. And uh, uh, we went on to investigate what would be the implications of low muscle mass to chemotherapy treatment, <clears throat> excuse me, and what we found was that having low muscle, uh, so people with low muscle, they had a higher incidence of those limiting toxicity. Uh, so not only our research group, but a variety of other researchers elsewhere have shown that it uh, doesn't matter the type of cancer or the type of chemotherapy, um, we've seen that having low muscle, again, predicts severe toxicity. So that is undesirable toxicity, doesn't help us treating cancer whatsoever. So I've mentioned um, just um, summarizing, we've talked about physical function, we've talked about survival, we talked about chemotherapy toxicity, and there's data to, to suggest that these people, when they are uh, um, operated, they have more complications. Um, they also have higher, uh, uh, so the length of hospitalization is higher. And there is, a, 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 um, of course, they have the cost to health, that our healthcare system is higher as well. So th these are all consequences of having low muscle mass in cancer. Inherently then, or kind of automatically, a lot of people will say, okay, so low muscle mass associated with all these, you know, adverse events and toxicity and uh, poor physical function, the the automatic thought then is, okay, so let's improve muscle mass. Um, given, you know, kind of identifying low muscle mass or low lean tissue at diagnosis and then saying, if you're in this low category, you're at risk for all these things. Inherently, you think, okay, let's improve it. Given how difficult it is and potentially the time frame between diagnosis and the, and the onset of treatment, what do you foresee some of the challenges in trying to do this? Um, I think that the first challenge, first of all, is how we're going to accurately identify it. And we're working very hard on trying to uh, um, bring things from the research setting up to the, the clinical setting so that people can actually look at body composition in the clinical setting. And sometimes it can even be surrogate tools. But yes, you're absolutely right. So what do we do about it? We know cancer is a highly catabolic uh, disease. So people are spending a lot of, uh, uh, not spending, I would say muscle is being lost as a very high uh, uh, pace um, when we have cancer. So how can we countermeasure that? The interesting thing, though, is that it takes us a very short period of time to lose muscle. But it takes a such it, it takes a way longer to gain muscle, right? We all know that, and yeah. that is a challenge. <laughs> exactly. So that's the challenge, and I, I would say that um, the 
the first thing is, so I actually like to use the, the, the analogy of a, 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 you know, a fire spreading in a, for, a forest because, you know, it, again, it, it's so, it spreads so fast, but it takes so much longer for us to rebuild what's being lost. And, um, now, on that note, we, uh, we're just seeing some emerging studies now on how can we countermeasure that. And, um, and I think that the, the main question is, do these people have anabolic potential? We've had seen uh, most of the research that's been done in terms of muscle loss and, and rehabilitation in cancer, uh, whether it's, you know, with a variety of different methods, is being in the uh, advanced cancer setting, so in the cancer cachexia setting. And a major question, because a lot of trials have failed, especially nutrition trials, is that whether these patients can actually build muscle. Can we? Can can they build muscle? Um, and of course, this is uh, I'll go. I'll talk about earlier stages later. But absolutely, one of our research studies have shown that this they have anabolic potential. Now, the secret is to start intervening earlier on in the disease trajectory. So the minute they are diagnosed, for example, or uh, especially patients who don't have what we call the refractory cachexia, so patients who are not at the end of their, uh, or they have, for example, three months life expectancy. Because for these patients, we don't believe that they, they can put on muscle. Um, so the goal there is more on a palliative setting. But patients earlier on, they sometimes they even sh can can show say, spontaneous uh, uh, gains in muscle when they are uh, tolerating chemotherapy well. They are responding to chemotherapy. Their pain and symptoms is optimized. So this is very obvious that they can they can put on muscle mass. So I think that we if you can optimize uh, um, um, or or come up with a strategy that um, encompasses a variety of different strategies. So uh, what we call a multimodal approach to treating muscle. We are, I, I like to joke that, and we in nutrition and exercise are divorced. Um, because, you know, nutrition is uh, uh, doing its own thing. Exercise is doing its own thing. We're not holding hands. And it is so important because, you know, exercise, we know how much that can lead to muscle gain in cancer. We know these patients can tolerate exercise. They can even do exercise from home. And uh, now in terms of nutrition, we all think we know so much about nutrition, right? But nutrition should be seen as a therapy. And we need we need the building blocks to building muscle when, you're ex when our patients are exercising. So we need protein. We need the muscle building uh, nutrients. And I think that if we join forces here, we're going to come up with amazing strategies. Whether the low muscle mass we have to delay therapy, for example, uh, I don't think that that, that that may be the the way to go. But I know oncologists now that are looking at uh, CT images, so computerized tomography images, and decreasing the amount of chemotherapy, for example, if this patients have severe muscle loss that is more uh, you know with pragmatic like i don't think we need a, trials we need randomized controlled trials we need very well designed trials to know exactly how many how much chemotherapy these patients can tolerate or how much we should be giving them or how we should be escalating the doses but i think that that's a way to go so can we adjust can we alter practice a little bit so that we're not you know giving severe toxicity to our patients who have low muscle which is where beyond the proof of concept that that's an issue right now so i think that you know in terms terms of surgery, what can we do uh, in a short period of time? Because I think that uh, getting rid of the cancer, of course, is more important uh, than anything else, right? So cancer is different than other diseases that you can delay surgery a little bit. But what can we do to optimize recovery, for example, right? So can we come be very aggressive, I would say, uh, uh, types of rehabilitation programs and, you know, um, again, multimodal, optimal cancer care, nutrition, physical activity, uh, um, 
and and uh, pain and symptom control to just uh, uh, really focus on uh, muscle anabolism for this patient. So we still need a little bit more evidence, but absolutely, like the biggest challenge, if I can recapitulate your um, or, or just uh, reframe your question here, is finding out uh, specifically this recipe for intervention. Uh, but we know already, you know what I mean? Be- before we reach that goal, let's just start off with what we know. And we can talk a little bit about what we are studying right now, where uh, one of my research studies is looking into uh, how can we optimize nutrition for these patients. But I think that uh, can we use what we know and optimize the, the status of these patients for sure. It's a way to go. So let's say um, you, you did a good job of kind of touching on uh, CT scans and, and their potential value in a clinical setting. Um, let's backtrack one step before we go into the interventions and, and chat a little bit about what you've done in the space and what you think are important areas and actually measuring uh, body composition appropriately. Excellent. So uh, as I've mentioned before, when we look at body composition, we really need more sophisticated tools. And there is a variety of tools that they can be applied to the clinical setting as well. But one advantage that we have in the oncology setting, and so we study people with cancer, is the availability of computerized tomography images, which are images taken for disease diagnosis and treatment follow-up. So these images are on the medical records for a majority of uh, people with cancer. Uh, particularly uh, 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 people with um, cancers of the GI, uh, gastrointestinal tract, for example, we can find the, the, the landmark in the body that we're looking for for this body composition assessments, which is the third lumbar vertebrae. So what we've done is we've... Uh, um, we take advantage. It's an opportunistic tool. So we take advantage of these images from the medical records and we evaluate them for an additional purpose of body composition assessment. Um, so what we need is a, a software, a specific software that can quantify these different tissues. We need a knowledge of anatomy. And uh, uh, and then this is a very powerful tool in the clinical setting because these images are readily available. Now, what we have is we started having one, two, three papers. We have more than 900 papers uh, or research articles out there right now talking about using CT scans in uh, in cancer. And what we have also that's very relevant to this knowledge translation is the availability of uh, softwares that are automated. So you can uh, throw the image in there. They are going to be giving you the result, uh, which is ready to use, ready to be interpreted by the clinician. So I think that the, the field is very rapidly evolving. There is a variety of companies as well that are interested on uh, 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 utilizing this technique or even developing this technique. So I think that what we're going to see in the next very near future is how can that be implemented in the clinical setting. And I also actually have a, 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 a small study that we started with uh, Leah Gramblick here at the University of Alberta, that we're trying to implement that. We're trying to actually uh, um, look at all the feasibility steps in terms of teaching our dietitians to look at uh, body composition of, of patients or, or using these images for the clinical assessment of every single patient that comes through the door. Of course, it's a small study because we're going to start with a small uh, number of people that we're training, a specific cancer type that they're going to be looking at, and uh, also what can we do once that's identified, as we've talked about, what are the interventions, what's, what are the next steps. But I think that that's we're just learning, you know, what are all the steps to getting this implemented in the clinical setting so that we can teach people to to use that in their own uh, 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 in their own clinical setting so is this something that 
you think uh, day-to-day clinicians in, in busy clinical settings with 40 patients a day are readily thinking about? Is, is it something that's in the front of their mind? Are they aware of the implications of muscle mass? You, you know, is, is that stuff there? I think that it's it's they're not going to be doing that for all patients, but they can they, they can choose right. They can screen their patients and see you know this person is having some difficulties with activities of daily living, or you know I suspect that this person has very little muscle. Can we uh, uh, can we perhaps go on for a second evaluation? So we don't know yet how we're going to be screening the patients, but I think that in terms of clinicians being aware, I think that this is emerging in a very good. Uh, uh, um, I would say ally that we had on that area is, is starting to publish these papers on journals that these clinicians are reading. Mm-hmm. I remember when I started back in 2007, you know, uh, it was so difficult to get my papers into uh, uh, oncologist journals because, you know, of course, the people from nutrition are interested, people from exercise science are interested, but oncologists were not, uh, um, you know, it wasn't relevant for them. But the minute you hit the outcome survival, then it starts getting, you know, like a uh, 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 starts getting um, attention to other healthcare professionals, I would say. Uh, is, that, is, is it uh, uh, something that every clinician knows? I don't think so. Uh, but I would say that it is emerging and it is. Uh, we see more and more interest uh, uh, every day. This comes back to kind of understanding who to screen and how to screen because, you know, I think you mentioned the, the thought inherently goes to the older and more frail individual where, you know, maybe five or 10 kg of body weight loss is very noticeable compared to someone who is on the other end who's 150 uh, kg. It, mm-hmm. it, it may be more insidious and that kind of leads us into the, the cachexia space. So let's jump into that and talk a little bit, give our listeners an overview of, of what cachexia is, cancer-related cachexia, and uh, all the, you know, the little bits that go into it. So cancer cachexia is this very aggressive syndrome that is uh, characterized by an ongoing loss of muscle mass. And it's important that we, when you talk about cancer cachexia, it can occur with or without losses of fat mass. So that is really the definition that kind of excludes that idea that I've had, remember, of the person with cachexia looking very petite, very frail, on a very low BMI. So that's the new definition of cachexia actually acknowledges that. So don't don't look at their fat mass. Don't look at their body weight. Look at their muscle mass. Now, um, when they they have cancer cachexia, one of the definitions that have been, they're working on a new definition, but back in 2011, Fiona et al. published that is that a cancer cachexia cannot be fully reversed by conventional nutritional support. Uh, and leads to progressive functional impairment. So it's this syndrome. It's combining a variety of factors. So it's a multifactorial syndrome. And you know what? It's very difficult to, re- difficult to reverse it. There are stages of cancer cachexia, though, that that's, I've mentioned before, the refractory cachexia. So refractory cachexia is the end-of-life cachexia, which is very difficult for these patients to put on any muscle, to respond to any therapy, because really, again, their catabolism is very fast. But their earlier stages of cachexia, we truly believe that patients can, uh, uh, they can put on uh, uh, muscle mass and we can, there, is, there are things that we can do to countermeasure that. I think it's important to highlight, as you mentioned, the distinction between earlier stages of cachexia and the refractory stage of cachexia. Because when you see individuals in that refractory stage, the rate at which they're losing um, you know, body weight and, and lean body mass is just 
insane to where it yeah. really is you see the, the lifespan of months and um you can go from looking like an apparently healthy individual to to unfortunately you know declining so much that that people end up passing away within months and and it is it's it's a tough field to be in and working with that that population absolutely yeah and it's and again it's something like we 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 really want to try to reverse it and we what we know is that there's a um, but pretty much what they're looking for is weight loss is a foundation uh, diagnosis here. So you see that and then the, the degree of weight loss can char characterize a person uh, as pre-cachectic or cachectic. So pre-cachexia being a weight loss of 5% or less, cachexia being a weight loss of greater than 5% or having a low BMI and weight loss or having sarcopenia and weight loss. So sarcopenia, which is this uh, how people call low muscle mass, another way of calling low muscle mass, is and is not necessarily cachexia. So that's, I think, a, a, a criteria here for us to differentiate because we've been talking about low muscle mass. So having cachexia is low muscle plus a degree of weight loss. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and then refractory cachexia <clears throat> is more related to this uh, life expectancy. So it's more of a clinician's call of how many, of the survival of our patients. And I think that I touched on something. I've talked about I, I, I said the word sarcopenia and people are willing to kill each other, whether, uh, you know, depending on which, how you call it in cancer. So, so would you like me to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. And because I think it's really important to understand the difference in mechanisms as it relates to both <laughs> sar sarcopenia and, and cachexia, because they are markedly different. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, uh, um, you know, we've called low muscle mass in cancer sarcopenia simply because the word sarcopenia means loss of flesh, loss of muscle. Uh, but there is a real uh, uh, um, push, I would say, from the scientific community now for us to differentiate sarcopenia from weight loss. Sarcopenia being a syndrome that's characterized by both loss of muscle mass and strength and uh, uh, sorry, and muscle loss be being what we've been doing in all these papers that we've looked at that I've mentioned. There's like 900 papers out there uh, just looking simply at muscle loss in cancer. So uh, sarcopenia was a term that was firstly coined uh, um, to identify the loss of muscle mass and strength in older adults. And that's why it's very different than what we see in, in, in cancer. And we call it now you know, primary sar sarcopenia, secondary sarcopenia to differentiate. So what we've done in cancer is mostly looking at muscle mass alone, not looking at function just in terms of a diagnostic way, because it goes back to what I talk about, uh, CT images being readily available. So we retrieve these images and a lot of the research that we've done and other research groups have done is the retrospective setting, uh, uh, more or less. But obviously, we can incorporate measurements of muscle strength to help us uh, diagnose these individuals. But that's not to say that it's very different. What we're talking about in cancer is very different than what people talk about in older adults. So we shouldn't be uh, lumping them all together because they have different mechanisms. Uh, in the uh, in elderly, you know, we, as I said before, we lose muscle as we age. Uh, um, but with cancer, we not only have the aging factor, but we also have uh, the treatment factor. We also have uh, uh, um, uh, a variety of uh, mechanisms that are activating, uh, like what we call the ubiquitin proteasomal pathway. So we have uh, a catabolism enhanced in this disease. We have the quantity and the quality of nutrients that is not optimized. And um, we also have pathways that are activated that will lead to this muscle loss. 
loss, which is more, much more severe compared to the, the sarcopenia in aging. So the, the sarcopenia with aging is, is kind of a, a natural process that occurs with aging. You know, we've got a, a loss of type 2, you know, muscle fibers specifically yeah. and, yeah. and uh, you know, I suppose neuronal de- degeneration and things like that. And cachexia is, is this more complex, uh, aggressive type of, of muscle wasting that is a result of, you know, underlying inflammation, maybe the tumor burden itself and, and treatment-related factors that, uh, as you mentioned, is so much more complex that it makes sense then that conventional nutrition support isn't going to, to optimally target it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, so yeah, the inflammation, I think, is a key factor that uh, um, uh, that differentiate them because uh, sometimes the, the inflammation in the sarcopenia uh, of aging uh, uh, setting, I would say, is very subtle. And cachexia, we do have uh, a systemic inflammation. So actually, that's one of the ways that the consensus criteria that, uh, define cachexia. There is both reduced food intake and systemic inflammation with cachexia. So those are very important factors. And again, reduced food intake is not necessarily observed in uh, people uh, in older adults. You see that once they are 80, age 85, so at the uh, upper end of the age spectrum, but we don't see that in earlier, uh, earlier, uh, uh, um, you know, younger individuals, I'd say. But that is very, very important in cancer. So that systemic inflammation, so it's very difficult. Of course, like optimal nutritional support is not going to be enough to reverse that. And that's why it goes back to that keyword, which is a multimodal approach. Because it is a multifactory, multifactory syndrome, you need, we need a multimodal approach to tackle it and to be successful with the syndrome. And again, identifying it earlier in the disease trajectory because um, once you have the the stage of refractory cachexia, cancer disease is very pro-catabolic and it's not responsive, not even to anti-cancer treatment, let alone with other interventions. And talk a little bit about the, um, I suppose, trajectory, because the assumption is, of course, that people go from pre-cachectic to cachectic to refractory cachexia and, and the 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 ways at which people can move in and out is is of course a lot more variable um as you yeah. said can kind of spontaneously gain muscle treatment can be re- removed and some of these uh factors dissipate so talk a little bit about that so so yeah and then again i, I can it's it's one thing when you say, okay, let's try to characterize and define how the syndrome evolves. And it's the other thing when you go into the clinical setting, and sometimes you have a patient presenting with a specific uh, 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 state, a specific uh, degree of weight loss, but you not necessarily know their life expectancy, for example. There's a lot of tests that need to be done, and not, not, not all clinical settings are equipped to looking at uh, every single factor that we may be looking for uh, in terms of diagnosing cachexia very well. So I think that we have to be... Uh, um, very uh, um, understandable of these differences that our cancer patients will present with and also uh, the degree of inflammation, the degree of malnutrition, the degree of weight loss that they're going to present with. So I think that that's absolutely right. And and I think that the research is evolving. And I'm actually looking very forward uh, to seeing the new consensus criteria on cancer cachexia and seeing how they're going to be defining this, these stages and, you know, this spectrum, um, which one of the things that's important is that cachexia represents a spectrum, but not all patients will progress through the spectrum, right? Um, so at, 
at, at right now we don't have very robust biomarkers to identify people who are precacactive, for example, and are likely to f progress further. Um, so we don't know what's going to be uh, um, occurring. And also refractory cachexia is defined essentially on the basis of the patient's clinical characteristics and circumstances as defined in the, 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 the Furan et al. paper that I've mentioned before. Um, but I think that an excellent addition to the podcast would be inviting one of the authors of this upcoming publication so that um, we can have an idea of what they're going to be considering having learned what they've learned from 2011 here. Yeah, you read my mind. I was uh, the next question was going to be asking you when you anticipated this publication coming out and and who are some of the the people involved in it, I suppose. Yes, I don't know uh, when it's coming out, but Mama Vicky, I call Vicky Barracles Mama Vicky. <laughs> uh, you can call Mama Vicky, email her, say, Mama Vicky, uh, <laughs> she's going to laugh. Uh, say, I've heard that you're working on this. Would you be really? She would be an excellent speaker and absolutely. So Vicky Barracles, also from the U of A, <laughs> our university. I know for sure she's an author because, you know, I don't know if you know, but yeah, Ken Fearn passed away. Yeah. Yeah, you probably know that, but um, a huge, huge loss for us. But Vicky is very involved on this paper. Give a brief testimonial to, to you know, I've briefly stepped into this space and, and I've really opened my eyes to the magnitude of, of what Kenneth Fearon did. But, you know, give a little testimonial to, to what the impact he's had in this field. I think Ken revitalized the importance of... Um, cancer cachexia, the importance of nutrition um, to to our world. And I think, to me, he's pretty much the most humble um, scientist that I've ever met in terms of uh, being this huge, well-known, world-renowned uh, expert, but being able to sit uh, and discuss science and inspire uh, uh, people, especially he did that when I was a, a, a graduate student, uh, also when I was a professor, of course, but he is that person that's always willing to support us, uh, the upcoming scientists. He uh, also, he He's not arrogant, and I think that that's a, a that's a huge quality that we're looking for in the academic world. And that's Ken Fearon. He would uh, he would just convey the information um, in such uh, uh, in depth, but also uh, being able to translate that to any audience and inspiring other uh, healthcare professionals and the the younger generation. I would say to follow his steps. He was just an absolutely amazing person. Ken worked on a lot of the clinical trials that we see on like, even drug trials related to cancer, cachexia, and uh, giving consulting and our helping companies. So he helped like, from scientists and from students to, to, to big pharma uh, reach their full potential in terms of investigating the syndrome of cachexia. And the best person to talk about him would be Vicky as well. So I think that, that this would be amazing if we could honor that. That was a great idea. It would be a great idea to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I would encourage any of the listeners who are interested in this space to, I will link his, his profile and his work in the show notes. He, he really was uh, a world leader in this space and, and uh, you know, it was a tremendous loss, but he leaves a great legacy and a lot of scientists that are, are uh, kind of branches of, of his tree, you know? So, um, Let's talk a little bit about you. You did a really good job of kind of highlighting this idea of multimodal approaches because you've identified that, you know, individuals in this cachexia space, um, you know, have a 
you know, potentially a blunted anabolic, anabolic potential. They're in a catabolic state. We need the, to overcome inflammation. So it really does need a multi-pronged attack. If you're just saying, sorry, you are cachectic, try eating more. Well, if they've got challenges to actually, you know, consume adequate nutrition, that's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough to offset inflammation. It's probably not going to be enough to, to provide an anabolic stimulus in its own. So we really do need the, this kind of kitchen sink approach. Absolutely. And we have a, a very exciting trial that is underway now uh, that's called the MANAC study. And the MANAC study is looking at a multimodal approach to treat cancer cachexia. So they are looking at nutrition. So these patients are receiving a high protein, high calorie diet or supplements, I would say. And they are they have home based exercise interventions, uh, uh, and they also have anti inflammatory therapy. So this is there you go. So you're treating and of course optimal cancer care. So you're trying to to countermeasure this condition by uh, being with an aggressive treatment. So you're using a multimodal approach to treat cancer cachexia, which we know it's going to be more effective. And we're very looking forward to seeing the results of this trial, which uh, going back to Ken Firan, that was Ken Firan's, uh, 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 one of Ken Firan's and of course other colleagues' idea to, to get started with that. So do, do you foresee this being one of the major areas of research moving forward in, in kind of marrying the, the fields of, of nutrition and exercise science as, as we look to to come up with more combination strategies as opposed to working in our silos? We need to hold hands. And uh, we need, for example, I have a study going on right now that we're trying to understand their protein needs of people with cancer. And I was so criticized when I was trying to get funding for that, saying, you know, you don't have an exercise intervention. And I full, am fully aware of the, the, the need for exercise intervention. But what I, t I told the reviewers, I said, I really need to understand the protein needs of people with cancer so that we can, I can help my colleagues in the exercise science to say how much protein they need for that type of exercise, what the type of exercise, because uh, um, I understand the protein needs first, then we move on to see, you know, okay, this is how much you need uh, when you add an exercise intervention. Because again, if you're building, if they're exercising, their protein needs is going to change and we don't even understand how much they need without the exercise. But I'm fully aware that my intervention to build muscle mass is going to be much more successful if we're combining, um, uh, you know, if you're combining forces, if we're, joint, if we're increasing the anabolic potential of our patients. So I think that even what we're doing right now is uh, talking about, you know, we have different expertises here, and when we think of research studies together, when we think of uh, presentations that we can give at conferences together, I think we're bringing together this idea or, or bringing the idea that uh, uh, synergy and also this uh, combination of expertise is, has much more, uh, uh, um, it's much more powerful than working in our silos. That's for sure. But I had to talk a little bit about my study because people are going to say, well, you're not doing exercise, but it's because I want to go back and I really need to study the, the core a need of the patient so that when you add the exercise intervention how much more protein are they going to need so let's um let's talk about it how how are you looking at it what are you looking at is there 
or are there specific cancer types you're you're interested in? Yes. So we are uh, again looking at. Uh, we started thinking. Okay, let's let's feed these people. We're going to start with food alone and seeing if we can optimize their diet in a way that can they can build on muscle. So we're looking specifically at high quality, high protein diets. We're giving people a very high protein diet, two grams per kilogram body weight per day, which is the what is being. Uh, uh, um, you know, it's a research, a question for research that the new nutritional oncology guidelines have uh, versus the minimal recommended, which is one gram per kilogram per day. It's uh, notably the, the minimal recommended is more than what the average person that doesn't have cancer needs. Um, but we are still so then we're comparing how much muscle they build on these two different study arms. And um, uh, one of the things that we've learned is that it's almost impossible to reach the two grams per, per kilogram body weight per day. And it's, you know, of course it's possible, but in terms of getting their patients with their, their normal activities and uh, reaching that amount through food alone, it's very challenging, especially for people who have a higher body weight. But I have to confess that my uh, dream um, is not to give people protein per kilogram body weight, because uh, what I believe is that our recommendations as anything else that's moving towards this focus on body composition is to focus recommendations or focus protein recommendations on their body composition, particularly their lean mass, because what's driving our protein requirements is not body weight. So what's driving is lean mass. So can we optimize the protein intake of our patients based on um on their body composition. And I was just successful also with a, a research grant that I'm really looking forward to um, to starting with Dr. Raja Lango from uh, University of British Columbia. We're going to be the first that are going to be looking at protein needs of people with cancer using a, 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 an indicator amino acid oxidation rate. So we're going to be starting this study very soon. And our focus and answering your question about cancer focus, we've started with colorectal cancer, and that's simply because it is, uh, you know, a, a second or third most common cancers around uh, most most common cancer type across the world, um, and. A lot of these patients also have obesity, so they have that phenotype of low muscle and obesity, or sarcopenic obesity, if you want to call it that way, that we that I talked about before. Um, and we've have uh, we've been we know we have been gathering a lot of information on colorectal cancer throughout the years in terms of my research program and and my colleagues' research program. So we thought that that was a good place to start, um, and we are doing all of these studies in colorectal cancer, but rem reminding people that our recommendations for nutrition for you know energy the calories and pro protein needs for example they are not specific to cancer type um, they are um, you know they, they are what I call one size fits all whether eventually we're going to be optimizing that by cancer type um, um, it remains to be discovered but as of now I think that even studying colorectal cancer is going to inform other cancer types for sure uh, solid tumors for sure um, we know that there is highly catabolic cancer such as head and neck cancer cholangioclastinoma cancer for example uh, of course these people may may have a little bit of a different uh, need than what we're going to be identifying with colorectal cancer but we believe that that's a good start are you when you're talking about um identifying protein needs are you talking about it with a view to preserve muscle are you talking with a, a view to increase muscle or, or when you say identify kind of optimal protein needs what are you what are you interested in specifically 
Um, and I think that's, that that goes back to what stage of the disease trajectory. Uh, but prevention and uh, uh, prevention of muscle loss, I think, should be our main goal. But clear, like it's obvious that a lot of our patients are going to present themselves as you know muscle losers already. So we're going to have to have the, the, the recommendation. But the key here is to I would say to prevent further loss of uh, of the person with cancer because sometimes it's going to be difficult for us to be building the muscle. Uh, because of active treatment, a lot of these patients are going to have fatigue. It's going to be very difficult for them to eat more or to exercise more. Um, so prevention is also key for us. As of now, our study, we're looking for who can, you know, can they, these patients build more muscle? Uh, and preliminary data, you know, it's just a pilot study, but preliminary data, what we've seen is that people who are following the higher protein diet, they're not getting closer to the one, they're getting around like 1.5 grams of protein per day, but they've put on one four kilos of muscle. The one gram arm, we avoided losses, which is, okay, it's working, but if you can build on muscle, like you, you know, this is, this is a, this is huge for us. So I think it's really uh, giving us some, uh, some very like uh, concrete working hypothesis for future studies. And that's protein alone, as I've mentioned. So can you imagine what we can do if we're optimizing protein with exercise intervention? When you're going through these kind of interventions, are you concerned or do you care about, um, how you fill in the rest of the calories from fat or carbohydrates or even the overall caloric intake? Uh, I think that, you know, a lot of uh, our uh, patients with colorectal cancer, as I mentioned before, they, they are, they actually uh, are overweight or they have obesity. So we are, uh, for us is what we're doing is remember I said, one of our units is, uh, we look a lot at energy metabolism. So we've measured precisely the energy needs of our patients, uh, so that we are matching their calories. I'm not looking at weight loss. I'm not looking at weight gain. Um, actually, one of the inclusion criteria of the study is a normal body weight because we're not going to be studying now uh, the need for, um, you know, if you have a sarcopenic obesity, for example, what happens if you lose weight? We don't know. That's a very, uh, um, very touchy area. I would say we don't know whether, whether weight loss is uh, good for our patients. Um, but what we do is we're on optimized calories to maintain body weight. So we distribute the calories uh, uh, um, uh, among the macronutrients accordingly. And they're all matching the recommendations. So they're all mat matching our uh, um, uh, RDAs here. We're all matching our uh, um, Canadian and, and, and American guidelines. But again, optimizing or increasing the, cal the caloric arm. So everything else is like we're within recommended range ranges of macronutrient intake. So this brings about, uh, I suppose, an important question for particularly for future research as we're talking about this whole idea of low muscle mass being implicated with treatment toxicity, prognosis, survival. Um, do you think we will get to a point where maybe there's a threshold of X at which you need to get above, you know, X kilograms of, of lean tissue per, you know, body weight or even absolute values to to see a beneficial effect? and kind of, you know, reverse the adverse effects. And that's what we've worked on in a lot of these research articles. We try to find this magic cut point where in which people below are going to be associated with, you know, we know that they, they will have this uh, clinical implication so we can stratify them. So we call it risk stratification. Um, now, the issue with a cut point is that the cut points may be uh, specific uh, they, they, uh, to a certain uh, cancer type. It can be specific to a clinical outcome of interest, and it can be specific to uh, a population of interest as well. So 
whether one cut point is going to fit all, uh, um, it's unlikely. So it's likely that we're going to be working with you know, cut points for a North American population, cut points for an Asian population. So it's uh, likely that we're going to see that. Now, again, uh, what uh, in terms of the clinical outcome of interest, we've started finding this magic number using survival as an outcome, simply because survival drives everything else in clinical oncology, uh, a lot of other decisions in clinical oncology, I would say more uh, accurately. Now, um, the cut point for, uh, for that, for survival, has worked well with other um, clinical implications, but obviously you can optimize that if you're using a specific uh, 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 outcome of interest. And I think that, you know, this is important for us to consider. Um, we have one cut point for osteoporosis, whether that's going to be true for us in uh, muscle mass, in terms of muscle mass, I highly doubt. <laughs> so coming back to, to the, you, you know, you touched on head and neck in particular, with a view to some cancer types that may be at a heightened risk of, of loss of lean tissue, loss of body weight, is it worth having a look at or starting some investigations into the whole idea of prehabilitation from an exercise perspective is to to optimize fitness to minimize the loss um maybe looking at that from a, a nutritional and exercise perspective to buffer some of the loss in anticipated loss in 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 tissue and maybe getting to to a caloric surplus prior to treatment to try and you know put on whatever they can in anticipation of loss that is such a difficult question because can you delay treatment mm -hmm. though? Why? Because the cancer is spreading, and it's something that I don't know uh, if like what what would the benefit be if we delay treatment? Now I think that the the right way to think about that perhaps uh, you know the the disclosure that we don't have scientific data for that is that perhaps we could. Um, give a less aggressive treatment because again if you give a person a severe toxicity they're going to have to stop treatment they're you know what I mean? So if you interfere with with that in terms of giving them too much chemotherapy drug, treatment cannot continue. So I think that if we can um you know, a lot of clinicians, they, they cap the dose of chemotherapy. You know, if you have an older age, a person with low uh, uh, physical performance or uh, performance status, they decrease the dose automatically uh, by an amount that they, they deem that's, that's appropriate. And I think that that's the way to go. Perhaps can we decrease the dose uh, uh, and, and see how the person is going to react, like what the chemotherapy would be for that patient particularly. But again, as I said, this is why we really, really need uh, a randomized controlled trial, which we have ongoing randomized controlled trials right now, looking at escalating the dose of chemotherapy, because then this way we are avoiding, we're going to get, like, understand a little bit more about how we can optimize treatment in terms of, uh, with the intervention without, like, giving them too much toxicity. So I think that's, yeah, again, going back to, to your question, it's, it's difficult to answer because we need to treat the cancer. Cancer is spreading, right, while we're trying to 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 countermeasure uh, the disease, but we have on that note a lot of evidence of the benefits of exercise intervention, even as a cancer therapy as well, right? Like we can, um, in terms of uh, blood flow to the tumor and several other things that we're, we are understanding. So again, we have to think of nutrition and exercise as a therapy. Uh, in terms of cancer, a lot of one of the things that we're studying as of now as well is um, is ketogenic diet, calorie restriction, 
and that's a work with we're doing with Amy, Amy Kirkham as well. And how can this this diets that are you know how can we use these diets in a very short period of time to to kill the cancer cell? Can we uh, can we use this these therapies? Can we use nutrition as a therapy combined with exercise? to um to improve how the, the cancer is going to respond to chemotherapy or uh, the, the the person is going to respond to chemotherapy or even to to um to enhance their uh their ability to fight the disease as well yeah so what else have you got going on that you're you're excited about your lab is is working on so we're also working on energy metabolism. So what are the energy needs of people with cancer? So again, we've talked so much about uh, uh, muscle loss, but we uh, we touch base a little bit on fat mass and and their and their calories, their the energy or the calorie needs that they have. So this is what the other thing that we're trying to study. We um, in clinical setting and even in research settings, uh, we estimate the amount of calories that people do, and we've had uh, a few different papers that are coming out right now highlighting how their energy energy needs are highly variable. The equations that we have that were developed many, many years ago, they are not working for our uh, uh, patients. Like you, you can underestimate, but particularly overestimate the calories by hundreds of calories, hundred calories uh, each time you're trying to estimate that. So we're trying to come up with ways that we can characterize the energy needs of these people. And that goes back to treating obesity uh, or even optimizing weight and, and treating weight loss in these patients as well. So it goes to both ends of the spectrum. So we're working on, uh, we have a whole body calorimetry unit and my facility here, this one of, uh, you know, maybe a 20 that we have worldwide. So this is like a metabolic ward. It's a hotel room like a uh, space where people can be inside the unit when you can measure it precisely, very precisely how many calories they're burning to an, ex an extent that if they, you know, stand up from a chair, we know how many calories they've burned. And we're the first ones to be looking at other, uh, uh, using this technique in cancer, um, paper is upcoming. We've just uh, published last week a paper uh, using doubly labeled water to looking at the energy metabolism or free living energy expenditure of these patients. And again, we're, we want to use this information to going back to the uh, um, to the drawing board in terms of intervention. So um, how much calories do these people need? And if we're going to be looking at weight loss or weight gain, uh, how can we optimize their caloric intake? And also, how can we help our colleagues in the clinical setting? What tools are available out there that are portable and that can be used in the clinical setting that are actually valid and reliable. So those are some of the things that we're also looking at. I need to come visit and get you to do that on yes. me, figure out what Absolutely. I'm, I yes. can't lose any weight. <laughs> We'll come visit us and we'll get you in the blood pod. We get you in the, the metabolic ward. We're going to get you in all these different cool techniques. As long as you keep my results confidential. So no one right? knows. It <laughs> <laughs> will rip it, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, listen, it, it was a, a phenomenal chat and, and such a wonderful insight into the, to the work that you do. And uh, I, I do recommend you. Doing work in this space is, is very difficult and you likely have a lot of barriers trying to, move about in the clinical world and and for you to put out the work that you do it's it's having tremendous impact worldwide so um i appreciate you for the work and i appreciate thank you, you so much. um having a chat with us thank you and thank you everyone for listening <laughs> uh, where can people find you keep up with you all that good stuff uh, my website, let's say. Yeah, website, Twitter, oh. whatever you're doing. You yes, know. yes. Uh, 
Uh, I've not been very active on my Twitter. I'm working on that. So Dr. Carla Prada would be the Twitter and uh, the website is drcarlaprada.com and you can get uh, through that website all the other uh, um uh, all the other information of where to find me on social media and also uh, to find a little bit about our work. 